So we are in the last week, and today what we're going to be doing is just walking through the membership vows. So not that many of you are considering taking these vows at this church for the first time. Uh, most of you have already taken these vows, but it is always a good reminder. Uh, it's kind of like if you go your, if you get married and then you go your whole marriage without ever remembering your vows or thinking about what it is that you owe to your spouse, chances are your marriage is going to struggle. Chances are you're not going to be living up to those vows. And so it's very similar when we take vows to the church. Something that we can go back on, we need to be reminded of, and we need to reflect on, am I living up to the vows that I've taken? Because you know what God has promised to you, he's going to do, but are you fulfilling your vows to the church uh, and to the Lord? And so that's basically what we're looking at this morning. Uh, but before we look into the questions themselves, and most of what's on your sheet is just the questions, uh, that's the main focus. But first I want to ask you to list out for me some of God's attributes, what are some attributes or characteristics, character traits of God? Holiness, good. He is holy. Omniscient. I'm going to put all seen because that's easier for me to spell. <laughs> what was the last one? Y'all trying to make me spell omnis. I'm not going to do it. Immutable. I can't think of an alternate word quickly enough for that. So there you go. Immutable. Eternal. Okay. Good. That's a good one. Okay. All powerful. What was that there, Bob? Absolutely. I'm not dumb. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, maybe one more. If you have one more. Faithful? Good. And let's see. How many do we get? We've got a lot of good ones. I'm just going to add one. Just. Truthful. That's a good one to add. I'll just put truth. Or truth or whatever that looks like. All right. Good. Uh, merciful. Yeah. Actually, let's. Use that as a segue into the next opening question. What are some of Jesus' titles in the tiny little strip we have here? What was that? Well, he's gone, so you know. But what are some of his, uh, let me phrase the question better, some of his titles. Okay, Lord, so Jesus' titles. So Lord, Son of God, Chief or, or Good Shepherd. What was that last one? The door. Okay, yeah. Door along with that uh, gate. First himself is the gate as well. Son of man. Savior, good. He is master as well. That's a good one. All right, what's another one for Jesus? If you say more of the full name, so to speak. Christ. Remember, XP just means Christ. What does Christ mean? Means, okay, yes, yeah, another word for Messiah. And what does Messiah or the Christ mean? The anointed one. Yeah, the one anointed by God, the one after David, the one to be the chosen one uh, to save God's people. So, yeah, we've got a lot of good ones. Savior, Master, Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, 
All right, good. Now, with those lists up, uh, let's talk about vows for a second, and then we'll talk about the questions themselves. Uh, so when you're taking these vows, who are you taking the vows to? Or when you took these vows, we can put in past tense as well. To God, okay? Is it only to God? Right, right. And so normally, y- y'all did well, you answered God first. But a lot of time when we think of vows, like, oh, I'm making a vow to man, before man or to man or whatever, which is not wrong. But you're also making it to God, and you have to remember you're making it to two parties. The church, meaning God's people, and the Lord. Uh, so that's who the vows are to. Now, why do we take vows to a church? Why bother with that? Why have membership? Accountability? Yeah, good. Commitment? Okay, very good, yeah. Right, right. Uh, Turn to Matthew 10. Just connecting everything y'all just said. That's all we're doing here. Matthew 10, uh, verses 32 and 33. So this is mostly looking at the profession of faith portion. I'll make sure most of you are there first. All right, sounds like most of you are there. All right, so Matthew 10, we'll read 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So what's Jesus saying there? It's not a trick question. What did the verse say? Right. So if you profess Christ as your Lord, you profess to follow him and you live it out, he will acknowledge you, profess you in a way before his Father in heaven. But then verse 33 is the opposite of that. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So when we're taking vows, it's to God, it's to man, it's to the church, uh, it's profession of faith, and it's openly claiming Christ as our own and giving us accountability, putting us under the discipline of the church, which is for our good, not because we want somebody telling us, uh, you're doing bad all the time or something like that. Uh, anyway, there's a lot more reasons, but any questions about that for now? All right. Well, let's start moving into the questions. Oh, actually, sorry, there's one more thing I wanted to read. Uh, there's two points from the Westminster Confession. If you have a question about something, the Confession normally has something to say about it, even if you can't find it right off the bat. So in Chapter 22... Is called of lawful oaths and vows. Wow, how fitting. Uh, point one is a lawful oath is part of religious worship. Where do you take your vows? Before the church, right. So it's part of religious worship wherein, upon just occasion, as in for an actual important reason, the person swearing solemnly calls God to witness what he asserts or promises and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he swears. Does that bring to mind the seriousness of what it is to take a vow before God, whether it's in marriage or church membership or, or, or office, uh, holding office in the church, you take vows as well. Um, and then verse, uh, not verse 3, but paragraph 3, says, Whosoever 
taketh an oath, ought to duly consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therein to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. In other words, don't take a vow unless you actually believe, one, that you believe in saying the vow, and two, that you're going to hold to the vow. Uh, so that's the first part. Neither may man, any man bind himself by oath to anything but what is good and just. So if it in any way goes against the character of God, that is a bad vow and the evil vow that you cannot take. Um, and then it says, and what he believeth to be so, that's just going along with the good and just part. And the last line is, and what he is able and resolved to perform. What does that last line mean? What he's able and resolved to perform. Yeah, that's definitely uh, definitely a part of it. Don't assume you can fulfill the vows, not think anything of it, and take them. Actually consider, am I willing to uphold these vows? Because they're weighty and they're serious, and God is going to judge us according to our vows, too. And so that's things we have to remember. Vows are serious. It's not just something to, you know, check off the list and move on. Um, so I want you to think about these deeply as we go through them. All right, now we can go to the questions. Uh, any questions before the questions? About what we said so far. said and it isn't interesting that it matches the culture's reluctance to commit to things and take things seriously uh dropping marriage rates and things like that kind of mirror that as well And that matches a lot of the early church. For one year, a lot of the early church processes, you'd be a proselyte for one to two years before you'd be baptized and join the church as a convert, not not for those who grew up in the church. But, um, yeah, the, and there's a balance to be struck between spending the year on a membership course. And uh, But it's great that people were ready and committed. If they jumped in, you knew they were serious about it. Right. And we're, I mean, this is a fairly small church, but we have enough visitors just passing through on vacation. If that was the standard, there's a lot of people us elders are responsible to suddenly keep an eye on. Uh, that, that would be impossible. Um, 
So, yeah, there's a lot of good reasons for membership, for the health of the church, and to prevent church hopping, too. That's something that's popular. You get mad, you have a conflict. Well, instead of work it out, you go, well, there's another church down the street, and you're gone. Um, and then you just take your problems with you is what really happens. You take your problems into a new church. And then guess what? Another problem happens, and then you have to jump to another church again. And that's not uh, biblical uh, conflict resolution or peacemaking. That's just ignoring the problem, covering it up, and moving on. Uh, but you take the sin with you is the problem. All right, let's look at question one. Uh, so I've got these questions. There are five of them. And I've got them split into two different categories. And that's not how they're split up in our book of church order. That's just for us as we understand what it is you're vowing. I think that's a fair split. And uh, that'll make sense as we go along. But the first section is really talking about the gospel, about the core truths of the gospel and, and what it means to believe in Christ. Uh, so it's really about personal faith. Uh, what you believe about God and your faith in him. That's what these first three questions address. So we'll split each one up as we walk through it, and then we'll look at a, a, at least one reference for each. <clears throat> so the first question, do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, saving his sovereign mercy? So let's split that up a little bit. So let's run up to the first comma in that question, do you acknowledge yourself to be sinners in the sight of God? Okay. I hope that's pretty self-explanatory what the question is saying, but do you believe that that's true? <laughs> Are we sinners in the sight of God? Right. And this is going back when we walked through the doctrines of grace or tulip, whatever you want to call it, total depravity. We are fully fallen. Uh, not that we are as evil as we can be, but that every part of our beings, body, mind, and soul have been affected by sin in the fall. And because of that, we are incapable of producing any truly good work on our own. We're incapable of appeasing God's wrath on our own. We're incapable of living up to the law on our own. And you, if you don't understand, if you miss that first concept, then nothing else about the gospel makes any sense. So there's a reason this is the first question. That's the first part to the question. If you don't understand what it means that you are a sinner in the sight of God, then you're either not redeemed at all or you are very, very young in the faith and you need to learn. <laughs> and God's going to teach you what it means that you are a sinner in his sight. Um, and so that's why the beginning, it starts at that fundamental element that you have to realize that you need help. You have to realize that you're a sinner in God's sight. That the holy, just, uh, good, all-powerful God is perfect and that you are not. If you miss that, you've missed the entire gospel. The key element of the gospel to begin with is acknowledging this to be true. So if that is true, that you are sinners in the sight of God, that you are full of sin on your own, how does that present a problem compared to the God who is this, who is this, who is this and this and that? Pick any attribute you want. It all connects. Right. Uh, Here's a holy, perfect God, and here's you who is not holy, who is not perfect, who is a sinner. And if God is truly good, perfectly good, truly, perfectly holy, then he cannot allow sin into his presence, period. It cannot happen. A holy God cannot dwell together with sin. And again, that's the core element of the gospel, because if God could dwell with sin, then we wouldn't need a Savior. We do what we want, and then we'll be with God anyway, right? 
But if God is truly holy, that means he cannot dwell with sin. That means he is showing his eternal wrath all the time against sin. That will never change. God's wrath against the unjust, against the wicked, will continue forever. As he is perfectly holy always, perfectly just always. And so that's the problem then. Okay, if we're sinners and God is perfectly holy and just, then that means we deserve his wrath. And we don't often stop and think in those terms, but apart from Christ, you deserve, you have earned God's wrath. That's terminology we don't like using because it's a terrifying thing to say. Uh, Or we think of it flippantly and don't really deeply stop and recognize what it is we're saying, that you deserve, you have earned, it is your just rewards for your sin that you deserve the wrath of God. Isn't that a pleasant thing to stop and think of? It should. Yeah, the truth is offensive uh, to the sinner because we don't want to be told that we're wrong and full of sin. But we are, and therefore we are justly deserving his displeasure. It's not unfair. It is fair because we earned it. (laughs) Um, Judgment from God, it works like a meritocracy. You earned your judgment. God does not punish um, undeservedly. That's not the right word. He does not punish unnecessarily. He only punishes sin. And therefore, if you're under his wrath, you've deserved it. And that leads us to the final phrase in the question. And without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. So even there, it offers up the hint, the the hope of the gospel. The, the, The start of the promise is right there. Without hope, save in what? In his sovereign mercy. In other words, is there anything else you're going to be able to do? If you're going to be saved, if you're going to uh, have the wrath of God averted from you, there's only one path, and it's through the grace of God. And the rest of the questions walk through, well, how do, you, uh, how do you come to fall under the grace and mercy of God? All right, let's talk about Ephesians 2 for a moment. So flip, flip over to Ephesians 2. We'll just look at the first five verses. I know everybody's going to want me to keep reading on into the rest of the verses too, but we're going to stop with the first five for now for this question. All right, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Apart from Christ, who do you belong to? Satan, the world, sinners, uh, evil. Uh, Verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of what? Wrath, justly deserving his displeasure. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then the famous, but, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. As you know, as you keep reading, you see more of that explanation there. But you justly deserve his displeasure. You are in with the enemies of God. 
Um, that's where you want to be until the grace of God, but God and his grace. And that's what begins uh, our salvation and carries it on to completion. Um, so any questions about the first question, the verse vow? So I'll summarize that question with, if you don't think that you are in need of mercy from God, then you need to do some heart searching because you don't understand the gospel. But if you do, then we move on to the next question and we get more to the hope of the gospel. So in other words, that first question is you can't. If you want to put a summary next to it, you can't. All right, so question. Right, right. Right, because if you're all great, you don't need a savior, right? You do what you want. But if the truth is that you are justly deserving of wrath, then you need good news. All right, question two. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for your salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Okay, so again, we'll break it up. So the first portion, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Look at that first. So we've got the problem, but we've got the hope but that there is sovereign mercy. What is the path of sovereign mercy? Jesus. And is it an interesting that when we went through titles for Christ, how many titles are used here? We see Jesus, yes, but what other titles around that? Son of God? And you can go into the next section, too, to get more. But you have Son of God, Lord, Savior, um, and the Christ. Yeah, so you get all those different titles for Jesus all together in that question. Uh, so, so far, I'll go ahead and give you a hint, uh, whether you've taken the vows already or whether you're thinking about taking them. Uh, none of this is revolutionary or outside of Scripture. We're just talking about the heart of the gospel. That's all we're doing. Uh, so Jesus, the Lord, the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, uh, do you believe in him? Just the fundamental question of the faith. Do you trust in Christ? Do you believe in him? Because uh, he, he is the Son of God. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is the anointed one. He is the master, the Lord, the judge of all mankind. And then that, the next phrase, and Savior of sinners. So in addition to all his glorious titles as ruler, he's also the Savior. He is both Lord and the sacrifice. He's the just and the justifier, right? Um, and so his grand titles and along with those grand titles is another savior of sinners. So in other words, if you want to be out of the, out from under the wrath of God, out from under that displeasure, you have to seek the sovereign mercy, which comes only through the savior. There's no other path. There's no other way into grace. There is Christ. Um, no one comes to the Father except through me, says Jesus. Next phrase. And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Actually, stop at salvation there first. What do you need to be saved in order to be saved? Christ. Not Christ plus something. If you're in certain churches or, or the Roman Catholic Church, it might be faith plus works. It might be play, faith and works and 
Well, maybe you need to venerate the saints and say enough Hail Marys. Maybe it's faith, works, veneration of the saints, and you also have to go to purgatory. Uh, maybe it's you don't need any of those things, and God's just waiting on you from your own heart that can choose good or evil to choose him and be a perfect person. So all you have to do is perfectly earn your way to, to heaven. Or you say the words, and that's all you need, and nothing else ever happens. But, you're, hey, you're saved. You said the words. Um, Yeah. Right. But once the Spirit sets up the throne, so to speak, for Christ to sit on in your heart, then you receive him. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's a good point that it's receive and not um, accept. And notice, I mean, why the redundancy? Why say, and do you receive and rest? Why both? Why does it say, do you believe rather than have you believed at one point or did you believe? Right. 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 Yeah. I think that's it. And and you're believing in Christ and you're resting in Christ. You don't believe in Christ and then add your works. You believe in Christ and you rest in him. That's the Christian walk is continually a constant process of leaning on Christ, repenting to Christ, uh, accepting forgiveness from Christ and moving forward and following Christ all the time. It's a continual process. Right. Yeah, you have all the promises, so keep trusting in the promises. Because uh, by Christ's blood, they're yours. Um, they're guaranteed. There's no if in those promises. All right, and then the final phrase of the question, which just because I'm a nerd and I like this, he is, as he is offered in the gospel. What does that mean? As he is offered in the gospel. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Are you trusting in the Christ as you have pictured him and imagined him in your mind? You took some core elements of the faith and then you made your own God? Because if the God in your mind that you picture as Jesus does not match the Jesus of Scripture, you've set up an idol in your heart. You're not worshiping Jesus. You're worshiping your version of Jesus. And that's why, and I don't want to get into too much of the, the second commandment violation kind of stuff right now. But that's one of the reasons that I don't like pictures of Jesus. Now, a lot of good saints disagree with me on this. But it's interesting. If you go around the world and throughout time and look at different pictures that have been painted of Jesus, one, one thing that tends to be true is it always seems to match the person who painted it or their culture. So if it's an Asian who drew the picture, he tends to be more Asian looking. If he's white, he tends to be blue, blue eyes and blonde hair for some reason. And so instead of painting him as a Middle Eastern man, he starts to match whatever person painted him or their culture. And so, again, 
You're fashioning something in your own mind versus what we know about Jesus. And so that's a side thing with second commandment stuff. But uh, it's always the case that we're trying to build up an image of God in our own hearts and minds rather than going to the scripture. And that's something that even mature Christians fall into all the time. Uh, Yes. <laughs> yeah. And how quickly we decide we think what we know what God is thinking or we think we know what God would do in this situation and then realize, well, we didn't even go to Scripture or pray about it. We just went with what we wanted and we put it on God as if that was his uh, eternal will in that moment. So we have to be careful. We are trusting in Christ as he is presented in the gospel, as he's presented in the Scripture, because as soon as you go away from that, then it's real easy to add in works. It's real easy to mess up the chain of salvation. It's real easy to say, well, man's not really fallen. Uh, Christ is just the great example for us to follow. We don't need a Savior. And so you have to take it as he is presented in the gospel. It's not, uh, interpretation does not belong to you alone. It belongs to the church. Uh, and so if you come up with an idea that seems great all on your own, but nobody else agrees with you in the church, chances are you're wrong. Chances are. All right, go to Acts uh, 4. So Acts 4, and then we'll look at verses 11 through 12. All right, verse 11. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you. Uh, Peter talking before the council, before the Pharisees. Uh, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other path. There's no other option. If you want mercy uh, from God, if you want out from under his wrath and displeasure, there is only Christ. He's the, the gate and the door. Um, he's the bread of life, the living water. There's no other. Um, he is the Savior alone. He's the way. The way and the truth and the life. And there is no other. All right, any questions about that question? I don't know why that seems fun to say to me. All right, moving on to question three. To round out the, the more gospel and personal faith questions. So the first question, sorry, was was you can't. The second question I would summarize with he can. That's what you can't do, he can do. So now we move on to the third question. So, do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? And so the way we'll break this down is we'll cut out that middle part, uh, and then we'll come back to it. So in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, but first, the main part of the question is, do you now resolve and promise that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? So if you want a quick summary of what this is saying, this is refuting easy believism. This is the, refuting the idea of once saved, always saved, as in as long as you say the words, you can go do whatever you want. And you got the, the special baptism, you're done. You're, you're, you're set. 
You can do whatever you want, live however you want, and you'll still go to heaven. Uh, that is not what Scripture teaches, and that is not what this question allows for. So notice the double statement at the beginning. Do you now resolve and promise? What does it mean to resolve? To decide, yeah, good. Any other descriptions? Clear it up in your mind, yeah, purpose. Uh, and it's something that has to be deep within you. It has to be mind uh, and soul. It can't just be a flippant, oh, I've resolved to do this. No, you haven't. That's, that's you randomly decided at that moment to do something. A resolve is a full commitment. So do you resolve with from the depths of your heart? Do you promise? Do you resolve? Do you intend to do this thing? And resolve and promise. So just you see the emphasis on stating it twice in two different ways. Are you resolving from the core of your being and promising that you will do these things? And then the thing that you're the core of the promise, of course, we'll get to the thing that helps you with this promise. Uh, but that you will endeavor, that you will do your best, in other words, to live as becomes the followers of Christ. How do you live as a follower of Christ? What does that mean? God saved you, now it's time to earn your spot in glory. Right. Yeah, so... What we're talking about is kind of the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is an act of God wherein you're saved, wherein God's right, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you and your sins are paid for. Sanctification is the continuation after that, that act. So sanctification is a process. Justification is an act, one-time thing. You are justified, then you're justified. That's it. But then sanctification is what continues throughout the rest of your Christian life. And sanctification is where God is making you more like Christ. Uh, you aren't saved and then you've got to earn your way. You aren't saved and then the formula changes. You're saved and then you continue trusting in Christ as, you, as God sanctifies you throughout your life. And God grows you in holiness. And God gives you the ability to live as a follower of Christ. So emulating Christ to the world. Uh, so doing good uh, works for people uh, on your own strength? What's the middle phrase now? Can't really talk anymore until we talk about the middle phrase. In humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit. So it's not God saves you and he says, okay, figure it out. He saves you and he gives you a spirit to sanctify you, to guide you, to teach you how to love others, to teach you how to continue growing in your love for God. And that's what enables you to live as becomes a follower of Christ, to pursue holiness and right living. Not because it's going to earn you your spot, but because you've been saved and so you've been called to walk righteously now. Not perfectly, but to at the best of your ability, follow after Christ. All right, let's look at some passages to help flesh this out. So go to Romans 8 first. And we'll just look at verse 26. Just so you know, that's hard for me. I want to keep going through the golden chain of salvation right after. But we're going to stop in 26 and just read 26. So Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
So there you see what the Spirit is doing for us. It's even helping us to, to pray, but really in everything we do. Um, but here specifically, it's talking about praying. We're weak. We don't know what to pray for. We don't know when to pray or how to pray. But the Spirit comes along and He teaches us and He intercedes for us. Um, and you see the depth of the way He intercedes. He doesn't just intercede for some of what we do with groanings too deep for words. He intercedes. It's like when you don't know what to pray, when you sinned again and you don't know how you can confess it yet again and how God could forgive you yet again. Well, the Spirit's groaning. He's interceding for you. Um, he's pleading the blood of Christ for you and pointing you to the blood of Christ through that process. So the Spirit at work, the Spirit enabling us to walk and then live as followers of Christ. I right, go to 2 Corinthians So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And so what we're talking about in this passage is our heavenly dwelling. If you look at the, the, the little caption there at the start of verse 5, it even gives you that. We're, it's talking, Paul is talking about glory, going home to glory with Christ. And the Spirit is given to us as a guarantee. Other places that refer to the Spirit as a seal. It is something that if we have the Spirit within us, it is the guarantee that we will be in glory. If you ever doubt, are you going to make it to glory? Well, it's the Spirit living within your heart. Because if He is, then you are going to make it to glory. Because the Spirit won't live in your heart. And then you not end up in glory. You're already in the presence of Christ because of the Spirit. So one day you will be fully made that way. The Spirit will bring it to fruition. He's the guarantee that it's going to happen. Uh, Right. Right. Because if the Spirit is at work in your heart, um, He was going to finish the work. And that's that Philippians uh, 1 6 passage as well. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, I may have slightly misphrased that, but that's the general verse idea. Uh, but yeah, the Spirit is a guarantee. And then lastly, we'll look at Titus 2. So Titus 2, and we'll look at uh, 11 through 14. And if you don't know, this is probably my favorite passage in Scripture. And I don't know how much of it I can fit on my tombstone, but if I can fit it all, that's what I want on my tombstone. Uh, i got to control my excitement here, though, and not talk about it for 20 minutes. All right, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So we've been more talking about the Spirit. This is kind of the, the other portion of this question. So for the grace of God has appeared. That means Christ has come. So grace has appeared in Christ, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so you see two major events in those verses. The first coming of Christ, and then you're waiting on something else in your Christian life. What is it? 
The return of Christ. So whether it's you go to glory first or Christ returns first, either way, it's you, Christ has appeared, given you grace, and therefore you're waiting for the second. And that's your hope, right? And in the meantime, what is the Spirit and what is the grace of God done for you? Well, you are trained. The Spirit is continually training you. God's grace is training you. And is training you to turn away from worldliness and to do good lives, to live godly lives in the present age. Again, not to earn, but because of the salvation you have, go forth and live as you ought. And then you go to the end of 14 and it says, a people for his own possession. So because you are Christ's, you must, must be zealous for good works. You must be excited and encouraged and overjoyed by the thought of doing good works. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to think in those terms, but that's what we're called to do. And with the spirit indwelling us, that's what we are led to do by him, to be zealous for good works. All right. Any questions about those first three questions? All right. Well, let's move on to the church specific questions in the remaining time we have. All right. So question four reads. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? All right, so we'll break it down. First, do you promise to support the church in its worship? What are ways that you can support the church in its worship? By attendance, good. By serving, how can you serve? Ooh, ah, yeah, flips over. It did. That was, I've been so excited to do that. All right. So we have attendance, serving. What are ways you can serve? What can you do to serve the church in its worship? Or not to work yet, but in its worship. Participate. Yeah, I kind of include that with attendance. Uh, but yeah, participating. Don't just show up, but actually be present in worship. Good. What else? Get a good night's sleep. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to sum that up as be prepared. Yeah, stay awake. Don't take your nap in here. That's not, that's not nice. Uh, yeah, prayer. And I think that kind of goes hand in hand with the being prepared. Come to worship, prepared to worship. You have all week, right? So you're going to go with the strength of worship from the previous week to help you keep your eyes fixed on heaven. And then as you come towards the next Sunday worship, don't show up on Sunday morning and be like, oh, I'm supposed to worship today. All of life is supposed to be worship and work and glorifying God, right? But we have one special day every week where we fully focus on that. And so you should be preparing your heart at least Saturday night. Stop and pray and get your heart set. We have communion. Use the whole week especially, but really every week. What we do in here should be fueling, feeding, and confirming all of the preparation you're doing throughout the week at home. Your Bible reading, your prayer, uh, just staying focused um, on grace, on what you're supposed to be doing as a believer, on encouraging and building up other believers. All those way, things are ways in which you can be prepared and things you can pray about. Uh, I think I just have one more to add to this. And this is going to cross into the next section as well. But ties. That's a part of your worship. So are you doing something to where you can actually bring a tithe? Or in your tithe, are you thinking worship? Or are you thinking, oh, I've got to check off the box this week? Um, 
When you tithe, you're saying, God, this is your money. You have blessed me with everything I have. I'm giving this back out of worship. Uh, it's yours, uh, but I'm giving it to the church for you. Um, don't give it just because you think it's expected. Give it because in your heart you are worshiping. Uh, and that's another way you uh, support the church in its worship. Uh, you're worshiping as you support it. Your support is worship, right? Uh, it all feeds into each other. All right, and what about work? How can you support the church in its work? Maybe first the question is, what is the work of the church? What counts as the work of the church? Because in some ways, it, even the work is worship, right? But we'll separate it for the sake of clarity. What is the work of the church? Yeah, ultimately to spread the gospel. And how do we do that? Preaching? Teaching? Yeah, teaching children is a huge part of it. Missions, yeah. And, again, so, I mean, that brings ties back into it, too, because, well, how do we support missions? Well, we can go on mission trips. We can pray for and encourage our missionaries, which we absolutely need to do. But it's also giving to our missionaries, so they have the funds to go forth and spread the gospel. Uh, but then there's one or more element in each local church that you need to think about with the work of the church. you got preaching, teaching missions. I like that. <laughs> Wait. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And if you're tithing and giving in worship, then the pastor will be provided for. But you're absolutely correct. What about the rest of the leadership of the church? It's not just the pastor. He's just one elder. You got a whole bunch of other elders. You got a full session. You got a diaconate. Uh, those men are doing the work of the church. And of course, as I say work, it's not like grudgingly doing miserable tasks for no reason. We are worshiping through our work, but it is work. In many ways. Uh, so supporting the session and the diaconate, supporting the presbytery and however you can, even if it's just praying for an upcoming presbytery meeting. And as I remember, I'd like to remind you all when there's upcoming meetings so you know what's going on. Uh, for instance, in November, when we meet, we'll be voting on some amendments to the BCO. As far as I remember, I don't think there's anything too controversial this time around. Uh, but nonetheless, it's something to be in prayer for. So I'll try to remind you all of that as we get close to it. But those are ways that you can help the work of the church by just praying and supporting your elders. Uh, support your diaconate, uh, or, or one deacon anyway. Support David all you can. <laughs> um, but then how does the question close? Because I love the close of this question. It's so well thought out and fine-tuned. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the what? To the best of your ability. Does that mean that everybody needs to go to seminary and become a counselor or pastor? Not at all. Does it mean that everybody needs to hit the mission field? No, although we want people to hit the mission field. But to serve the church does not mean you have to go become a missionary and move to another country right now. Uh, it is to the best of your ability, meaning what has God gifted you with? What means has he given you? What abilities or heart has he given you? Um, if you have a heart to serve the widows in the church, serve the widows in the church. That's something you can do. Uh, that's to the best of your ability. It doesn't mean you ignore your family and spend 24-7 living in this building doing anything that needs to be done. That you still have a family to serve. Um, or if you have a job, you still have a job to do. So it's with the time you have, with the gifts that you have, with the heart that you have, that you are called to work for the church, to help it in its worship and work.
right. And I need that reminder, too, because sometimes I do that. I'm like, okay, i, I got to finish this, and then I'll pray for that. Well, sometimes I finish this, and guess what? I forgot about the text I got, and I don't remember till later that night or something. So, yeah, stopping, when, if you can, stop that moment. Um, if not, then you've got to bounce, which you can do to the best of your ability. Remember. Um, yes, well put. All right, uh, we'll move to the last question because we're running out of time here. Uh, do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? So, again, we'll break it down. So, do you submit yourselves to the government? What is the government of the church? The session, right. It's not asking you if you agree with every single point of our book of church order. Okay, you don't have to do that. Uh, if you're going to be a leader, yeah, you need to you need to understand and agree to it. But what you're saying is that you agree that this is that you're going to take vows to a church that has a session, that has a diaconate, uh, that has a pastor. That's kind of the government of the church. So do you accept and, and understand that willingly? And along with that is the discipline of the church. Who has the discipline of the church? The session. Yeah. Now. Right. Right. Very good. And yeah, so we're going back to the, the church court session, presbytery, general assembly. So, yeah, so there's a lot of uh, there's an organized flow of the discipline, but the elders have oversight over this specific church. And so their goal is to shepherd you well. Uh, that means, though, if you fall into sin, what you're asking them to do is to step in and confront you about it, because the purpose of the elders is to lovingly shepherd the church. Would it be lovingly shepherding you if you fall into sin to say, all right, bye, and you just let them go? No, because you're watching a soul walk out the door. You're watching a soul fall into sin. So the duty of the elders in discipline is to pursue that person and to try to lead them to repentance. Not like a government do with like, okay, you're, you're going to go to jail for a week until you think this over. Uh, but like, do you realize what you're doing? You're breaching the gospel. You're sinning against your brothers and sisters, whatever the sin may be, and to call them to repentance. Uh, so one of the elders at Faith, uh, he's not there anymore. He's over in Laurenburg, but at Faith President Morganton, one of the elders would always hit this question really hard when meeting with people for membership. It's like, do you realize, because now you say you want this, but if you fall into sin, you don't want us showing up at your door talking to you. At that moment, you're going to hate us, but you're asking us to do that by taking these vows. And so if you've already taken this vow, uh, even now, you're probably going to be like, yeah, I want this. But if you ever fall into sin, you're probably not going to be happy to see you showing up because that's the way sin works. Uh, but you need to know that you're asking us to take an interest and shepherd you. Um, yeah. Any questions about that? That's a big topic, which I had to cover very quickly. I should have left more time for that. Oh, well. All right. And last phrase. And a promise to study its purity and peace. Now, what in the world is that talking about? How do you study the purity and the peace of the church? Set your mind towards it. Yeah. Uh, don't cause fights. Don't cause conflicts. Or if you're in a conflict, go to Scripture, figure out how to settle it, get people to help you figure out how to settle it, and make sure that you're pursuing peace. Don't be a troublemaker. Don't be a gossip. Um, don't tear down the church or work against it. Work to grow the church. Work to be at peace with your brothers and sisters. Uh, work to be humble enough to submit yourself when you need to. That's a hard thing to do, but that's what we're called to do. I mean, last week's, wait, 
Yeah, last week's sermon, that's what we talked about is, can you submit yourself and humble yourself before others and before the church? And that's what you're being called to do here. So you want, and that's why when I pray for the church, normally what I'm thinking or what I'm even verbally saying is, I'm praying for fruit, for fruitfulness. And the one thing that's going to prohibit fruitfulness, well, one, is a lack of faith. But two, if we're not caring about building up the church, if we have no desire to see its holiness increase, if we have no desire to push each other on towards holiness, we're not going to bear fruit. And so part of that purity and peace is just desiring and praying for the church to grow, not just in numbers but in faith. Um, And as we grow in faith, God will continue to gift and bless us as he sees fit. Uh, But our goal should be faithfulness and fruitfulness. And so that's what I'm always praying for. And so keeping peace with your brothers, but also praying for peace and growth, whether it be in numbers or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well said. Right. Right. There's not. You you trying to? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, now if someone has sinned against you, that's what Matthew 18 talks about. You go to that person and you confront them in love with their sin. You don't beat them in the head. You don't scream at them. You say, you've sinned against me and you tell them why. And you call them to repentance. And then the Lord has to work though. So you can't make them repent. So all you can do is pray and go to them in love and present their sin to them. At the same time, if you know you have sinned against something, even if you're at the altar of the temple, what are you to do? Leave your gifts. And go make peace with your brother or with your sister. Um, that's the importance of the unity of the church. Because this hand can't say to this hand, I don't need you. That leg can't say to that ear, I don't like you. Uh, you're all one in Christ. And so we have to act that way, even when we don't want to and even when it's hard. Because there are times it will be hard and there are times where you won't want to be in the same church as another believer. Um, but that's where putting pride to death and remembering the mercy you've received uh, that you justly deserve God's wrath, and yet you've received mercy through the Savior. And rem- remembering that in that moment helps a lot. Uh, that's the only thing that will really help. All right. Uh, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. This will be the last reference we'll look at. And then this is just to, to reinforce the leadership of the church part of this question. All right, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
So I love the, how balanced and how robust that verse is. Okay, obey and submit to your leaders, but that's not all the author says. He tells you the reason you are to, because they're keeping watch over your souls. It's for your good, what they're doing, even if you don't always like it at the time. Uh, also, they will have to give an account. So that's the reason to pray for and work with them, because they are tasked with being your overseer. Uh, and then I love that concluding part of the verse. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Don't make life difficult for them. <laughs> Listen to them. Seek their wisdom. Uh, accept it when they give it to you. Because uh, they're not perfect. You, they're going to fail. Um, but you've got to give them grace just as much as you need to give yourself and others grace um, as well as Christ gave you grace. All right. That's the last verse there. So if you are one of the people who have considered joining, uh, that's the end of the class. So if you would like to join, talk to me. And all that would happen next is talk with you, see if you have any questions about anything we talked about. And if not, uh, we'll set up a meeting with the session for you to be examined and take these vows. Uh, and if that's something you're ready for, see me or see one of the elders, and we'll get that set up. Any final questions? No. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have some forms apparently available. So see me once I talk to Bob. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Uh, all right. Well, if there's no other questions, let me close this in prayer. And if you all have had questions about anything, just let me know. Uh, but thanks for letting me teach the class. And next week, uh, Nick will take the helm and keep walking us through Romans for a few years. So sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't resist. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this church. Um, I do thank you for every person here. Uh, They are your saints. They are your sheep. And therefore, they are precious in your eyes. Uh, So, Lord, help us to see one another as precious in your eyes as well. Uh, You have bought uh, everybody here with your blood. And you have called them to this place. Uh, Lord, that should drive us to worship. That should drive us to praise and uh, with great joy in our hearts. So, Lord, as we go to the worship service in just a few minutes... Lord, prepare us, set our minds on glory and on, and on Christ. Um, give us grace and give us of your spirit. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.